You heard this morning's hard truth already in the gospel, and it sticks out. And maybe the question is, why do these words of Jesus stick out in verse 30? Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize why those words stick out, why it's such a hard truth, because that is not the way the world operates. At the end of this school year, in the graduating class, they are not going to ask the student with the lowest GPA to be the valedictorian. That's not how it works. Prior to any Olympic Games, they don't take the last place competitors in those Olympic trials leading up to the Olympics and say those who got last place are the ones that are going to represent their country competing against the best in the world. That's not how it works. The sales rep at the company with the weakest sales for that year is not the one who's going to be on the short list for any promotions or bonuses. That's not how the world works. And so we understand why this is such a hard truth for Jesus to say. And not only this verse, but what makes it even more difficult is what Jesus said earlier in this section. In verse 24, he said, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. That is a very hard truth for us in a day and age, in a culture, in a society that is very all-inclusive, that wants to see everybody as equals and nobody excluded, regardless of background or history or, or past mistakes, whatever it might be, we want to see everybody included, especially when we realize that Jesus is talking about heaven here. We don't want somebody to be on the outside looking in. We feel that everybody should be able to make it into heaven. Almost, let's be honest, almost everybody, right? Not, of course, not the really bad people, and you know who I'm talking about. The ones that have done the sketchy things. I mean, maybe that's putting it too lightly. The ones that have done the despicable, disgusting, sick, twisted things and not only thought those things but, but acted on them, maybe we'd agree that those ones shouldn't be allowed in heaven. But everybody else, for the most part, good people should be allowed in. Maybe actually what we should do right now is if you want to take your service folder and a pencil or a pen and just jot down who you might put in that category of those really sick, despicable, twisted people in this world. And then let's go ahead and compare them to make sure that we're all in agreement about who should be on the outside looking in when it comes to heaven. And I think we've just exposed, at least in part, why this is such a hard truth. Because in general, people want to, to hold to two sentiments. That everything is, is equal. That we don't want to exclude anybody. And yet, especially when it comes to the spiritual truth of heaven or paradise or whatever, whatever the general public believes, that there are some people that, that wouldn't be included. And it's a hard truth because we want to include everybody, but we'd acknowledge some should be on the outside, but we also agree that we can't agree on who should be on the outside looking in, the really bad people. Which is where Christianity actually comes in. 
which is where Christianity sets itself apart from every other religion in the world because Christianity is, in fact, the most inclusive religion there is. And maybe you're balking at that saying, wait a minute, did you not just read the words of Jesus that said, many are going to try to enter in through that narrow door, many are going to hope to get into heaven, but they're going to be shut out. How can you say that Christianity is inclusive? In fact, many are opposed to organized religion and Christianity because of that perception of, of being exclusive. Well, Scripture explains in, in many places why Christianity is the most inclusive. One of those sections, maybe the most clear for our purposes this morning, is in Romans chapter 3. In verses 23 and 24, we're told, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. First part puts us all in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat of having missed the mark, is what that means. God's expectation, his demand, is that everybody throughout their life, in every thought, word, action, everything we do, is one bullseye after another. You can never miss the mark or you aren't allowed into heaven. We're all in the same boat because... That's none of us. But we're also all in another boat. The boat that, that we just heard that declares that you are justified. That's a fancy word for saying declared not guilty. That God, because of Jesus Christ, has said, I'm not holding your sin against you because he has paid for it in your place. I'm not holding your sin against you because he did not miss the mark. He hit the bullseye through his whole perfect life. So I declare that you are not guilty. Everyone, all people. God has made that declaration. You can't get more inclusive than that. However, what God won't do is force anybody to believe that. And another thing that God will not do is accept alternative arrangements. And it's not because God is narcissistic that he's some pie-in-the-sky deity that demands my way or the highway because I'm just so full of myself. It's because there is no other way, there is no other payment that can provide what we need to get into heaven. That explains the response when that individual came to Jesus and said, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And, and Jesus responded by telling him, not the answer to his question, but instead, make sure you're among them. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many will try to enter and not be able to. Well, how do we account for that? How do we explain that many are going to try and be on the outside looking in? Jesus goes on to explain why that is, because many, unfortunately, are going to be in for a rude awakening, uh, an embarrassing shock on that last day when they come to meet Jesus, the Jesus they expected to know and to know them, and Jesus says, I'm sorry, who are you again? He described it, it this way. He said, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me all you evildoers. 
Have you had that kind of experience in your life? At some social gathering, maybe a class reunion, and you start to see a lot of faces, some of them more familiar than others, and you see that one face, and, and you light up, and you rush over to that individual, and you immediately launch into some shared memory that you had, some positive time from the past, and you share all of the details, and you're laughing, and you're giggling as you're recounting, and you look at the person's face, and it's stone cold and clueless because he doesn't know you at all. And so you, you assume, well, maybe you just haven't shared enough of the details and, and you share some more of the story and more of your past experience together and nothing changes. That person simply doesn't recognize you. Jesus says that's what it's going to be like on that last day. Now, the question we want to answer is, who falls into that category of people that are going to hear Jesus say those words, I'm sorry, who are you again? Maybe it's oversimplifying it, but for our purposes this morning, let's think of two primary categories of people that would make up those that are not going to enter in through the narrow door. And it would be the first category, those who want to redefine God's expectations. And the second category, those who want to redefine God himself. The first category might be familiar if you know the Gospels and you've paid attention to Jesus during his life and his ministry. We'd call them the Pharisees. And they exist today every bit as much as they did in Jesus today. So today's modern-day Pharisee might be the individual that is in worship in church every Sunday, but not to be filled with the assurance of peace and forgiveness for a weary sinner, but to make sure that they get the perfect attendance sticker. That modern-day Pharisee is the individual who gives 10% to the Lord, but not as a reflection of how deeply passionate in, in love with Jesus that person is, but rather because that's what's required. This is the individual who, who reads his or her Bible, but not to get to know Jesus better, to be reassured of these important eternal truths that also bless us for this life, but because that's what we're supposed to do. And at the end of the day, Jesus says that, that those who have lived that way, who have treated his word, who have treated religion as if it's simply a bunch of steps that need to be carried out in order to get right with God so that on that last day they can hand their self-righteous resume to Jesus and expect to get in. And that's when Jesus will say, I'm sorry, who are you again? These were the very individuals that, that Jesus was describing in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 23, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside are full of hypocrisy. This is the, the teachers of the law that Jesus says, You yourselves uh, do not enter, nor will you let those who want to enter in. He told them very clearly, you're not going to be able to get into the door, and that's not even the worst of it. It's also that you're keeping others who want to get in out because you give them the impression 
that pleasing God and doing the right thing and obedience are the ticket to get through that door. And those who fall into that category of basically changing God's expectations for heaven are going to be on the outside looking in. The second category, though, is no better. It's those who, rather than redefining God's expectations, redefine God himself. And you might recognize these individuals because as you are talking about or discussing your faith or religious principles or teaching or doctrine, talking about applying it in the headlines today, and and this individual says, well, I just don't believe that that's how my God, the God that I believe in, would act or treat people. And that should be a red flag. Because... Excuse me, but where did you come to understand the God that you believe in that way? And if you don't mind, could you please also explain to me how that version of God is better or right or wrong from your neighbor's version of God and the other person down the street who has an entirely different version of God, and yet all of them can be right. And by the way, who is the one that is telling God how he should handle this situation or that situation or this matter when you have basically made him into your own avatar? You have created your own version of God. And it's somewhat ironic, I think, isn't it, that the accusation against Christianity would be that it's exclusive, and yet nobody would seem to recognize how unreasonable it is that there can be so many self-made versions of God and all of them can be right. Is that any more reasonable than the God that has revealed himself in Scripture? at least be genuine enough to say, rather than making up your own version of God, that I simply don't believe in a God, then there won't be so much shock when the God who does actually exist refuses to acknowledge those who denied it. So it doesn't matter if you're in the first category of those who want to redefine God's expectations or just the second category, redefining God altogether. We don't want to be in either one of those. Because those are the ones that Jesus was speaking about are not going to make it through the inner door, the, the narrow door. We're wanting to know how do we make sure that we get through that narrow door. And I'm sorry to tell you, you can't. You can't make sure that you'll enter through that narrow door. But Jesus can and did. Jesus alone is the way through the narrow door. And Jesus says in order to fit through this narrow door, you need to keep all your self-righteous acts and your resume. They're not going to fit through the door with you. You need to keep those aside. And also any fabrications or ideas of what you think God is or should be, set those aside too because I am the only way. Jesus as much as said that, And he gives us hope in in this account because he does point out that there are going to be people gathered from all over who, as Jesus says, are going to take their seat at the kingdom of God, that feast that is waiting. Now, who are those people? How do we get to be numbered among them? Jesus has not left that up to our guessing or surmising. He has made it very clear. He says in Scripture and in John's Gospel, he uses a little bit different term, but it's the same point. He refers to himself as the gate. He says in John chapter 10, verse 7, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
That's pretty simple, isn't it? I'm the gate, I'm the door. Enter through me and you have the assurance of being saved. Try to get through any other way and there's no guarantee. In fact, there is a guarantee that you won't make it through. But Jesus alone says, when you recognize who I am and what I came to do for you, there is no doubt. There's no hoping. There's no possibility or maybe. There's only certainty. Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the gate. Trust that I am the one who has not only hit all of the bullseyes that your father required for you, but I have also washed away all of the times that you missed. Every last sin. Humbly place your trust in me as your Savior, and I guarantee that you are in. And yet so rare is that, which is why Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last. Those who are unexpected are the ones that are going to enter into heaven. Not those who are overconfident in their own self-righteousness or their own idea of God, but those who in perfect humility recognize Jesus alone is my hope and certainty for salvation. And this week we, we reflect on the truth that we are so all in on that promise from God that our congregation sees the value of having a Christian elementary school from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. And yes, you can be sure that all of the students in our school are going to be well prepared for the next academic level for success. And they are going to receive the, the care and concern from their teachers that equip them to be confident and build character. They're going to have the social skills necessary to fit into today's very difficult world. But they're going to have so much more than that. They're going to have teachers who care enough about them, not just for this life, but for eternal life, not to just cover all of those other things, but also to point them to Jesus, the narrow door. So that they have so much more than just what this life and this world offers. They have the opportunity to thrive, yes, but to have life with Jesus now while he promises to be with us and give us life to the full but life with Jesus for eternity because they come to know and to believe and to graduate with confidence in this truth that Jesus is the door, their hope for salvation. May God continue to bless our school this year and in the years to come as we pass on this important truth to generations to come. Amen.